Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 559 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I have been busy getting ready, getting my presentation ready for the Content Bite Summit, which is on this weekend in Sydney. And um, if you haven't heard of it, it's a summit for journalists, content writers, copywriters, and other freelance creatives keen to future-proof their freelance income. Now, I think um, that Rachel and Lynn have done an incredible job with putting together the Content Byte Summit, and um, I'm so keen to catch up with other freelancers and other copywriters and other creatives and also other graduates of the Australian Writers' Centre who have now carved out a very successful career in the world of content and copywriting, and some of them are actually going to be speaking at the summit. For those of you who are interested, uh, you can have a look at the content byte, that's B-Y-T-E, summit.com.au. And if you are going to be there, make sure you reach out and, um, and say hello. I would love to meet you. All right. Apart from that, this week I have been preparing for our next Focus on webinar as well. So this is the last time I'm going to mention it because it's on Thursday the 14th of September at 7pm Sydney Melbourne time and uh, it's with the wonderful Pamela Freeman who is our Director of Creative Writing. It is a webinar called Focus on Style and Tone and I think that it's really important for fiction writers who, if you can't actually describe or articulate what your writing style is, then um, I would say that this is a must attend. To give you an example, I was talking to a friend of mine recently and she was reading a book um, and she was talking about the style and the style that in the way she described it was was very, very simple and it was um, about writing about the ordinary things in life but making them beautiful and magical. And, you know, that was specific for the particular author that she that she was reading at the time. But she was able to articulate, clearly articulate, that particular author's tone and style. So if, if you think that you're not quite able to put your tone and style into words, then, as I said, I think that this is a must attend. Because Pamela, who is going to you know, who will be conducting the seminar, I mean, the webinar, will be deep diving into the elements of style and how it affects the tone of your story. And it's so important to cover this because style and tone is something that often writers don't think, don't, don't deconstruct and don't think about it in an analytical way. If you want a style that engages readers with your characters and encourages them to read on, this is for you. And also, if you're not clear what tone you need for your genre or subgenre, then this is also for you. So do make sure that you join us Thursday, the 17th of September at 7pm Sydney, Melbourne time, and it will go for an hour and a half, an hour of presentation and 30 minutes of Q&A where you can ask any question you want. So to find out more, go to writercenter.com.au slash style. That's writercenter.com.au slash style. 
Now let's move on to my writing tip this week. If you're struggling to fit writing or editing, I guess, into your day, maybe it's time to change when and where you do it. For example, if you try to sit down every night at, I don't know, 9pm to do 500 words, but you haven't managed to sit down once in the past two weeks, maybe 9pm at the dining table doesn't actually work for you. So try something else. Try writing in bed maybe before you get out of bed, like in the morning. Or stop at a cafe on the way home um, to write for 30 minutes over a cup of tea. I mean, I love writing in cafes. That's my thing. So I'm a big fan of that. It may not work for you, but it definitely works for me. Like I just love the white noise and I can just immerse myself in whatever I'm writing. But as I said, you've got to do what works for you. Or you could dictate into your phone while you walk the dog. Um, uh, in, in the past, we've had Tristan Banks on the podcast and he talks about how he goes for a walk on the beach in the morning and he types with his thumbs on his phone, his story, and before he knows it, he's got like 2,000 words or something. Um, if you find that you can't stick to a writing routine, try a new place or a new space or both or a new time. Just make sure you try the new routine for at least two weeks to see if it works for you. Okay, now let's move on to our competition this week. Oh, I have three copies. Are you ready for this? I have three copies of O Miriam by Miriam Margulies. This week's giveaway is a hilarious and powerful read. We're giving away three copies of O Miriam by award-winning actress and best-selling author Miriam Margulies, who you may recognize from you know, like Harry Potter and lots of different um, movies. And also if you're a YouTube fanatic, I've kind of sometimes go down the slippery uh, hole of YouTube. Her clips on the Graham Norton show are absolutely hilarious. Uh, If you haven't seen them, check them out. Just search for Graham Norton and Miriam Margulies. They're (laughs) They're just highly entertaining. Anyway, here's the blurb from the book. Join us on another unforgettable adventure through the extraordinary life and strong opinions. Oh my God, she's got strong opinions. It's so true. Of Miriam Margulies. This is Miriam's quote. My new book is called Oh Miriam, something that has been said to me a lot over the years, often in tones of strong disapproval. It contains lots more revelations and stories and discoveries, and I can't wait to share it with you. Okay, so the blurb continues, from being escorted off the Today program, for saying what we were all thinking, to declaring her love to Vanessa Redgrave, from Tales of the Unexpected to Graham Norton's Sofa, she is our most loved and most outspoken national treasure. O Miriam takes you inside both her head and her heart. Buckle up for the most irrepressible, hilarious and moving read of 2023. And fun fact, in case you didn't know, of course, Miriam is British, uh, but she's also an Australian citizen. She became an Australian citizen not that long ago, I think a few years ago or a couple of years ago, and has a house in, um, I think it's somewhere like south of Sydney, might be the Southern Highlands, I think it could be Robertson or somewhere, which she actually rents out, you know, to holiday makers as well. Anyway, I have three copies of O Miriam by Miriam Margulies to give away. Entries close on the 18th of September. Just go to writercentre.com.au 
slash win. And if you are listening to this podcast sometime in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic competition for you to enter if you go to that URL, writercenter.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are because here it is. It's a doozy. It's chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro. That's C-H-I-A-R-O-S-C-U-R-O. Chiaroscuro. What does it mean? Okay. If you look at the the dictionary, it's one of the definitions is the treatment or general distribution of light and shade in a picture. And another is pictorial art employing only light and shade. So it's a term that I had, uh, you know, never actually used until I started oil painting. In art, chiaroscuro is the use of strong contrasts between light and dark. And that's something that I actually try to do a lot of in my painting because it gives paintings more depth and drama, which is what I want to achieve in my painting because I paint flowers, large-scale flowers, so I really want a lot of depth and contrast between the petals. So you could say you can really see the chiaroscuro effect in my paintings or, you know, you might say she stepped into the chiaroscuro of the moonlit night. There you go, chiaroscuro. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story. And if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history, or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know, from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life, to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step-by-step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash creative nonfiction. That's writerscentercomau slash creative nonfiction. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Today I'm talking to Sarah Ogilvie, who is a linguist, lexicographer, writer and technologist. Raised in Australia, she has lived and worked in both the United States, teaching at Stanford and Britain. She currently teaches at Oxford University. Her latest book is The Dictionary People, the unsung heroes who created the Oxford English Dictionary. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sarah. Oh, it's my pleasure. I loved, 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 loved your book. And I have so many questions. I mean, not only 
Oh, do you obviously love words and um, have an interest in people who love words? Clearly, this was a labor of love. We're going to unpack all of that. But just for people who have not yet got their hands on a copy of The Dictionary People, and you absolutely need to because it's fantastic, um, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. Um, So The Dictionary People is about all the people around the world who helped create the Oxford English Dictionary in the 19th century because the OED was really the Wikipedia of the 19th century. When they came up with the idea of writing a dictionary of every word in the English language, they were really smart in realizing, look, you know, a small group of men just living in Oxford or London can't do such a massive task by themselves. So they came up with the idea of putting a call out to the public, not just in 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 Britain, but also in, in Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, Canada, every everywhere. And they asked people to read their local books and highlight words, copy out the quotation onto a little slip of paper, a four by six inch slip of paper, and send them into Oxford. And when they and they put these ads in newspapers and journals all around the world, and they spread the spread the word through clubs and societies. And when they did that, they weren't really sure whether anyone would actually write back and do this task. And then, as as we know now, with 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 crowdsourcing, these kinds of projects can just capture the passions of people. And that's exactly what um, happened. Like so many people sent in slips that Royal Mail had to put a special post box outside the editor's house, which is just up up the road from me in North Oxford. And that post box still exists today. This red post box that now got a little blue blue plaque on it saying this is outside the house of James Murray, who was the longest serving editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. Let's just give people some context as to what you've been doing, you know, before you started writing this book, uh, because you're, you, you, you were raised in Australia. What, what did you study and what did you then go on to do, just so that we can have a bit of background? Yeah, sure. So I'm from Brizzy. And um, I went to uni there. And first of all, I studied mathematics and computer science. I didn't know what I really wanted to do. And then I discovered linguistics. And so I went to Canberra and studied at ANU linguistics. And it was there that I just discovered um, just how fascinating language and culture was. And I wanted to go deeply into that. And I ended up getting a job uh, with Oxford Dictionary and then with the Macquarie Dictionary, two fantastic dictionaries. And then eventually I came over to Oxford and worked on the OED, the big 20 volume Oxford English Dictionary here in Britain. And then I've just worked and I did my doctorate here at at Oxford as well. And then I've just worked since then either as a lexicographer or as a linguist in universities. Yeah, which so, is what I'm doing. And you're currently teaching at Oxford and um, and you're talking to us from there. Can For people who don't know what a lexicographer is, can you explain yeah. that to us? Yeah, sure. So a lexicographer is someone who writes dictionaries and lexicography is known as the sort of um, the art and craft of writing dictionaries. 
And so that's what we do. Yeah, we basically um, observe language in its natural habitat and then try and describe words. And if you're working on something like the Oxford English Dictionary, which is different from other dictionaries, because it's actually an historical dictionary. So there are two, there are two types of dictionaries. There are syn synchronic dictionaries that just take like, like the Macquarie Dictionary, that takes like a snapshot in time of words. And then there are diachronic dictionaries, diachronos, so across time, and they look at words across time, they look at the history of words, and that's what, what your big 20 volume OED does. It sort of gives you a biography of every, every word. And there's a lot of research then as a lexicographer that goes in, into that. And that's why when they reached out to people around the world, that's why they needed examples of how those words were used in written written sources so it's all those people around the world who sent in those words and those quotations that I wanted to finally give credit to because they hadn't been recognized before. Mm. I love the idea that it's a biography of each word I mean how how gorgeous is that I get annoyed at the other kind of dictionary because the word I don't know, chomping or champing, maybe have a completely different definition in this decade compared to another decade. Um, and, you know, I find that slightly irritating. But anyway, that's clearly a problem I need to deal with. Let's talk about all these people who contributed to the first incarnation of the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, because a lot of people are familiar with the Surgeon of Crowthorn, you know, they've seen the movie version or they've read the 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 wonderful book. Um yours is is doesn't focus on one particular person or one particular kind of situation like that. There were what three three thousand? There were there were so many people. How many people contributed to the original? So we thought before this book, we thought that there were several hundred, maybe up to 700. And that's because, um, so the dictionary wasn't published finally in one lot. They they published it gradually between um, 1884 and 1928. And it came, came out in what was called little fascicles. And in the preface to each of those fascicles, James Murray would sometimes thank some of, some of those people. So and then he also was the president of what's of this society in London called the Philological Society. And sometimes he gave lectures there and sometimes he thanked people in those lectures. So before this book, we went through all of those names and added up the people. There were about 700, but I always suspected that there were more. So for example, when you look at the first edition of the OED, there are all these Australian words there. Like there are hundreds, and they're not just your obvious words like kookaburra, koala, fossic, but they're these un, unusual words um, like wonga wonga and yarren, which is a type of acacia tree. And then there are ones that I've never e even heard of. There, there was a word which I talk about in, in the book, um, which is a brick, a brick fielder, which apparently was this word for this um this wind that sydney used to ex experience where dust from the brick fields used to carry across sydney so i've always wondered you know how did all these australian words get in um and so 
I, I did suspect that there were more than seven, 700 people. And then I made this discovery um, down in the basement. Yeah. So, so tell people wanna... about, yeah, but, I mean, do you want to? I mean, it happens at the very start of the book, but you know what? Let's not, because I actually loved reading about your discovery. So okay. let's not talk about it, but we can say that you discovered something that then set you off on this journey. Now, this journey, you then kind of realise, oh, okay, there's all these um, people who have contributed to to the dictionary. I'm now going to research them all. I mean, what were you thinking? What, what, how did that, you know, decision come to pass? You know, I was just curious, like I really wanted to know who they were. And I guess there was a little bit of a justice element to it where I thought, because some of these people sent in thousands of slips, like clearly this was taking up a lot of their daily lives. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands in some cases. Exactly. Like the yes. top guy sent in 165,000 slips within a 10-year period. And you just think, my goodness. And it was really hard to find out about him. And he clearly suffered from mental illness and um, his mental health really suffered as a consequence of, of probably doing that, that uh, task. And as you know, there's a whole chapter on uh, key people who were contributing from mental asylums back then. Yeah. Um, so, so I, so basically to answer your question, it was just curiosity I wanted to find out more about them. So I just, I was compelled to got but a bit you, obsessed with it. <laughs> so you, you became obsessed with it, but I can understand that, okay, I'm interested in this. I want to go down a rabbit hole, but this rabbit hole would have taken not quite as long as the first Oxford English Dictionary to compile, sure, but there were a lot of contributors. I, I, 3,000 comes into my head. Did I read that right or do I remember uh, that right? Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, and, um, but at what point did you think I might write a book about this? So um, it's a bit hard to explain without telling that that little piece of the story. But basically, when I made that that discovery, I realized there is a digital project within this because because I mentioned, you know, I'm a bit of a, com a computer nerd. So uh, what I did is I created these two big databases, which might be helpful for other people who might be writing a, a nonfiction book and have and have like a lot of data. So what I did is I created one whole database just just about the people and so I had those 3,000 people in there and I just basically wanted to find out when were they born, where did they live, what did they do with their lives, who did they love. Uh, I just wanted to know everything about them. And that meant trolling through censuses and marriage certificates and death records and anything that I could find. And then the other database was all about the books that they read because there were thousands and thousands 
thousands of books and all about the words that they sent in because that was in a way I was really curious like you know what did this spinster living in living with her sister out in the you know Surrey countryside what was she reading and you know were there any surprises in uh, that you know were there some sort of like some mismatches where someone who you wouldn't wouldn't suspect so you know one of them is he 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 had the world's largest collection of pornography so he's the guy who's sending all the all the sex words and got them into the dictionary and you know I sort of loved the whole idea of 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 James Murray who was really prim and proper and you know he didn't drink and he got up at 4am and worked really hard and he devoted his whole life to writing this dictionary and I love the thought of every month this 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 bundle of slips coming in with all these words about flagellation and bondage and sex it was just great so that's one of them um yeah but basically the people just came to life for me and it felt like they had just been lying there waiting for someone to pay them attention and try and tell their story because they're utterly fascinating but the thing is when you research all these people you then need to curate you then need to decide I can't feature 3,000 people how did you make that decision what was the what were the parameters it was so hard Valerie Mm. so but basically I struggled with that so all of the research and I sort of went down so many different avenues that took me seven to eight years and I wasn't cracking the structure I know and I wasn't cracking the structure because I felt so overwhelmed then I just had so much data it was like what am I going to do with this and then it just came to me and once I clicked the structure once once that clicked it was so easy and quick and I wrote it within about a year so basically the structure I realized that I could mirror the dictionary and so there are it goes a to z there are 26 chapters I love that (laughs) (laughs) and I so what I did in a really nerdy way is I uh, you know how I mentioned that I had constructed that database so I went through every person within the database and classified them um sort of according to themes and I just sort of wanted to see what patterns and themes came out from the people and then I grouped them. Some of them were grouped together, like all the suffragists together, all the sort of women activists who were fighting for the vote. I put all, all of them together. I mean, women, this is what was so exciting. Mm. We know that there were so many women who contributed to the dictionary, especially, which is quite remarkable when you think of the fact that we couldn't even go to universities back then. And yet there were these hundreds of women all around the world, um, reading their books and sending in slips. And it was almost like they were just like dying to use their brains and contribute to this project as well. So, yeah, so basically I just went through, looked for themes and patterns and then came up with this structure of A to Z. Yeah. I love this. I, I loved it. When I opened the contents page and I saw the A to Z, I just went, of course, you know, so clever. And as you say, um, a lot of women were able to participate in an activity or in a in an academic or activity that uh, of such significance that they would not normally have been able to in that time, unlike 
some of the compilation of dictionaries in other countries which you make mention of. And who knew? I mean, the, the oh, what was the word? The the, the German one, the, the Deutsche Wörterbuch, um, book. Book, yeah, uh, which was spearheaded by the Brothers Grimm. And yeah. it was either them or the, the Netherlands one where it was only, I don't know, 50 or 60 men predominantly and maybe one woman and and it was a, a so it was far fewer people contributing to those dictionaries and de de deciding what would be in those dictionaries compared to the oxford english dictionary which literally crowdsourced which was so so fascinating and so clever i i have to ask are you really um do you compartmentalize everything in your life? <laughs> like, are your, you know, is your sock drawer really <laughs> tidy? Uh, not at all. <laughs> and in fact, I am really hard with routine. I'm not good at doing things at the same time every day. So I'm quite the opposite. And it's probably because my work is quite persnickety. I like to have a bit of disorder within my life, or that's just <laughs> what sort of happens. So, no, I'm not. <laughs> so, you do this over seven or eight years as a as a side gig what were you doing in your day time and how much time would you spend on this and how how did you do it did you oh, all by yes sure so so actually um while I so at the beginning I was working at Stanford University teaching there and when and I mentioned this these two digital databases. So I was mentioning the project to my students and they were like, oh, we'd love to work on that. So I was like, oh, fantastic. So I got some money from Stanford who loved this project and contributed to it by giving me some research money. And with the students, we all worked together. So um, so I had this wonderful group of students who helped me go through all the censuses and all and all of that for a few years. And then I came to Oxford where there was no money for that. So I did it all myself then. Um, so this was definitely a team effort in the early, early years. And I'm so grateful to those students and I thank them in, in the book. Um, and but I think it was just they too, I think these the dictionary people and all their stories caught caught mm. these students and I think young people I hope will love some of the stories within the book because some of these I mean most this is the thing about these dictionary people I think before now we've sort of thought that they're probably the scholars and the uh, uh, elites producing this dictionary but this but what I discovered is in fact it's the opposite that James Murray really struggled to get other scholars to help him on the dictionary and it was the autodidacts, the people who, like James Murray himself, left school at, at 14. And this was a common theme throughout the people. Many of them left school early, um, as many people did back in the 19th century. Uh, but clearly there was this passion to learn and to use their brains. And this was the perfect project for that. So... When did you know when to stop, though? Because you had to, I mean, you could have gone researching forever. You, What made you realise I had to draw a line in the sand? I think it was just actually I just personally reached a point where, oh, my God, this is just <laughs> going to go on forever and I can't let it, you know, <laughs> because it was taking over my life. I mean, when when I used to travel, like I tell that story where I went to 
I went to um, the hometown of the Brothers Grimm, where all the fairy tales were um, were were written because that they actually first and foremost were lexicographers and they actually wrote their fairy tales in their spare time that was like a side project for them and and in the and in this german town of castle which i recommend there's the most incredible museum there where it tells the story of the making of their dictionary and the making of all of those fairy fairy tales um so you know just everything I did, every holiday that I had, I spent in the Bodleian Library, going through the Murray papers and finding things and letters and all this. So I just reached a point where this had to had, had to end. And of course, that that therefore means that that I I'm absolutely sure that I haven't found everything about everyone. And I'm sort of hoping that some readers might pick up the baton and do some research themselves because it'd be wonderful if this actually sort of went be beyond me and if others could find out more about about these people as well that when i read uh what you wrote about the the museum in um that was a, about fairy tales and the dictionary um I was like, oh, my God, I know where I must go. <laughs> I know where I must go. There was just so much about this um, Ellis. Ellis, I can't remember his full name, but Ellis. I was re reading what you wrote about him and it was so, he was a phonetician <laughs> um, and he was really into words and the pronunciation of words and everything about him. I was literally feeling, you are my spirit animal. And and I, and I was actually at that moment pondered why, and I hadn't read the full chapter at that point. I was only about halfway through. Um, so this was a guy who was really into lots of dialects and accents and studying the differences in different regions and stuff like that. And I was pondering why. And I, my, the, the thing that came up for me was, well, I just have watched My Fair Lady one million times and then read Pygmalion one million times. And the next thing I read <laughs> that you wrote was that he was modelled, you know, that Henry Higgins was of um, Pygmalion and My Fair Lady was modelled on him. And I'm like, well, there you have it, right? <laughs> but I, I, I feel that you would channel you, your spirit animal is Murray. <laughs> <laughs> who is the second editor of the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, who spent so many years, like the massive, ridiculous decades, um, sorting and collating and, and, and curating. Did you feel that you were just maybe a bit obsessive, like, you know, Perhaps you should do something else. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I for mean, for your own health, you know. <laughs> the wonderful thing about Murray and the quite sad thing is that, you know, he spent all of his life beavering away on this dictionary and he started it, he started writing it inside his house and he had 11 children and his long-suffering wife Ada after you know there are all these books and slips around the house and he and she just said you have to get out of the house with all of these books and slips where we are moving you into the garden and they built this shed which became famous and it's called the scriptorium and that's where the dictionary was actually um written and so he beavers away and this shed was sort of dug into the garden so it was quite 
damp and, and dank. And so during the winter, it was really cold for the editors. They used to have to wrap their legs in newspaper to stay warm. And so that's that's basically what Murray did until 1915 when he finally died, but he died on the letter T. So he never mm. knew whether the dictionary actually would, would be finished. And of course, you know, if you put yourself into his shoes at that time, the first world world war was raging it really must have been such an uncertain time and I, I really feel for him because I'm sure that he died with a little little um feeling that maybe the dictionary wouldn't actually be finished and it did take another 13 years for it for it to finish but finally got and, there. and I just really wanted to teach him some negotiation skills for his um <laughs> salary well not salary his flat fee um, I think he was being paid, what was it, £9,000 over a 10-year period, but it was a flat fee, so it's up to him to, you know, obviously budget it, and then discovered that it was going to take way longer, and all yeah. of his expenses came out of his oh, fee. I know. He was the worst businessman and <sighs> just had this heart of heart of gold. And, you know, I think a little bit about, I think a little bit of him, uh, I recognized in you know the, the hundreds of other autodidacts who who left school early, early but were clearly brilliant and genius was that you know there was I'm sure a big part of it for him was sort of the prestige of being attached mm. to this pres, pres, prestigious pro, project so he he probably put up with so much just to stay in there and he clearly was so passionate and wanted this dictionary to come to fruition. I mean, he was, he was, um, he was just uh, so uh, single-minded and mm. the dictionary came first. And yet I hope it comes through in the book that he was still such a family man and dearly beloved by his children and, and, and spent any extra time that he did have, which was not much, but he certainly spent it with with his children mm. yeah. and 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 wouldn't negotiate a higher rate because he was scared that that then they would shelve the project then the dictionary would not come to life so that was like ultra dedication um you know but it was so interesting to read about so many people with a love of language and and I and from so many different so many different um walks of life you is there's um I think you talk about um um uh there there was a a Mary Pearson who was a cook or servant um but then there was um the pornography collector there was the president of Yale there was the inventor of the tennis net adjuster <laughs> yes. but then there was also Eleanor <laughs> Karl Marx's daughter. And I loved this story because she was, make you tell it. <laughs> no, 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 tell it. Yeah, so she basically was, she is in the chapter for H for hopeless contributors. So basically what she did is one, as you would expect of Karl Marx's daughter, she insisted on, on being paid and usually people weren't weren't paid. That's the incredible thing about this. These were all people who were volunteering and giving freely of, of their time. So she insisted on being paid 
for her work. And in the end, what she ended up doing was going straight to the British Library and just cut copying out words from a pre-existing dictionary. So actually the, the work which she did ended up not being very useful to James. James not Murray. only that, charging a ridiculous number of hours for it. It was insane. <laughs> so Actually. when when you do research these people, or the ones that you decide have captured your imagination, or, or you know, there's there's obvious um, records where you can get things like deaths and marriages and stuff. What are some of the unexpected research sources where you discovered, you know, things about these people that captured your imagination? Oh, right. Yes. So sometimes they were, so you can, you can go to, sorry, I've got lots of answers to that question. So basically <laughs> um, many of, some of them wrote memoirs. So the first woman, mm -hmm. this amazing archaeologist who grows up in Calcutta and sends in words as a teenager from the roof of her house in Calcutta. Um, she she turned a, a 100 in 1963 and she wrote a memoir called My First 100 Years, which is actually one of my favorite books. It's it's incredible. So I got a lot of wonderful, colorful material from from uh, that. Um, other other times, like um, one that was tricky was there were these two women in there, um, Catherine Bradley and Edith Cooper, and they actually were this incredible women an aunt and niece who published under a pseudonym they were poets and they wrote poetry in the 19th century un, un, under the name of Michael Field so there was a lot written about Michael Field but not about but but it took me a while to realize who these two people were and then there was a lot written about them it actually turned out that they were les lesbian lovers with one and one another so that was another colorful um you know part of the book um, and yeah, just other people. I just searched everywhere. I mean, Google Books is great. You can go to the National Archives within Britain and search for people. Then you can discover where their letters are kept. So I, I traveled a lot. I went to Scotland. I went to California to the Huntington Library where I found a, uh, um, a letter which was really key, which, which I'm sure you can remember from the book. So, um, oh, and also down in Australia, I went to the Australian National Library where the archive of one of the dictionary editors is kept. So yeah, did a lot of traveling, followed the leads. One, <laughs> one of the things that you say, <clears throat> just about stuff that you do is that you um you know uh enjoyed spending your holidays practically at, in in one particular period um every day in the Bodleian library which of course is the famous beautiful library um at Oxford and i get that that's my fantasy <laughs> but you tell me why 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 do you love it that much or love that idea uh, hmm, I, think the, I, I don't know what it is the activity the surroundings what is it hmm I don't know how to answer that I think I'm curious so I love just following leads and if that leads me to a, an archive that's in the Bodleian Library then that's great and then when you're there I mean it's just yes as you say it's just a beautiful space it's definitely got the x factor like you love being in that in that space and also because I do digital work, they are, they're leading the world in so many digital projects. So, and I've had the honor of 
serving on their board for the last few years. And so I'm just, I'm just the hugest fan of the Bodleian Library because they're really doing fantastic work. And you also, I mean, that was another part of it. I knew that lots of the materials that had been read for the OED, they only exist in that library. So that was a connection for me to some of these people as well. I knew that they too had sat there for days looking at materials that mm. are, are, are only housed there. So that was another little connection with the dictionary people. When you were working as a lexicographer, um, who was that for again? Which they were, It was for the... Quarry Dictionary, Dictionary and Oxford Dictionary in Australia and then here at the Oxford Eng English Dictionary. Okay. So pick one of them. Let's pick the Oxford English Dictionary since that's, this is what this is about, that your book is about. What do you do? Describe what actually occurs in the day of a lexicographer. Sure. So they're now revising the third edition of the dictionary. So this book is mainly about the first edition and then there was a second edition that came out in 1989 and now it's the third edition and um it's such a huge process because there are you know hundreds of thousands of words and you basically go through word by word so when it's a bit different now but when I used to work on it now pe people are working in in our groups and it's a whole new way of working but when I worked there we each of us sat in 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 a silent zone and it was very similar to when James Murray I could imagine him working in the scriptorium and not and not liking noise and stuff so it was a silent zone and if you wanted to talk to a colleague you usually went into a glass case and talked to them there so that people could concentrate back out in the open and you would get a little box of slips and you would be allocated um a portion of the alf alphabet. So, you know, I spent two years working on the letter P. Oh um, my God. And you just go through word by word. And so people still today, people do send in words and some of them send them on uh, slips as well. So you would have a little box of slips and you'd go through, you'd look at the slips. And then, of course, with the advent of the internet, you'd then be able to search through large databases and collections of books. And you'd be able to, so the most important thing when you work on, on a word is to try and find its very first instance, the very first time that that word was, was uh, used, because that will give you a clue to where the word um, was first created. And it tells you all about, if you can know about a word's birth, you can probably find out a lot more about its life as well. So so that so that was the process. And some words would take an hour and some would take several days. And sometimes talk about learning how to stop. I mean, that's really a good lex lexicographer is someone who knows when to stop because for every word you could just be going on for months and months and you've got to be quick and you've got to move on to the next word. Yeah. So let's take a word from the letter P. If it was not in the previous incarnation of the dictionary, I get that that research would need to figure out um, where it originated from and all of that kind of stuff. And then, um, but if it was in the previous dictionary, presumably you rely on that, but then you research whether the meaning has changed since or, or yeah, what happened. Yeah, totally. So you know how you were saying about um, about how a, what a word meant 10 years ago and now it means something different. So because they're so dy dynamic, words are changing constantly. So yes, so you want to update that 
entry, make sure that, that the current sense or senses are captured. But also you want to try and also, because now we've got access to so many more resources, you also want to re-research, research again those the beginnings of the word because we might be able to antedate that first quotation and find that it actually started earlier or started in a mm. different place or maybe it even had meanings before that 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 first meaning which you think that it that it that it had so yeah you yes, want to be have access to more resources now so let's pretend it's a word that hadn't existed before um and then you do your, your research which might take days or however long it takes what do you then do how do is there some kind of um, form or template or guideline or or something on how you write the entry like how you write its little biography sure yes so you want to be as uh concise as possible and use the simplest language to try and define the word you definitely don't want to define it in in terms of itself so you want to use really simple language and you want to uh capture the core meaning and then probably also capture the fringe meanings as well and if you can detect that the word is heading in a particular direction the meaning is changing then you definitely want to capture that as well so and yes yeah, so you start with the core um, meaning and then you expand and just mention a little bit of the ways and the nuances of that meaning as well and what else do you want to do you want to make sure that the evidence which you give for the word so in the OED it's got the word and then the meaning and then it's got this quotation paragraph that shows you how the word has been used throughout its life you want to make sure that you're choosing quotations there from a variety of sources so if you can find the word in a newspaper as well as a book or now we can we can um we can quote from uh, twitter you can quote from anything as long as it's datable and can be verified again. So you want to choose lots of different ways and places that the word has occurred. So you obviously love words, and but the English language, which you, as you've written in the book, um, also there's so many words derived from India or Arabic or obviously French and, you know, um, those sorts of languages, especially in Europe. What um do you also are you also interested in other languages and do yes. you know do you study them or or speak them? Yeah, so that actually was my role. So at the OED, I specialized in words coming into English from outside of Europe. So that's words coming in from Australia, from Japanese, from Hebrew, from Native American languages. So that that was my specialization and that's what I'm really fascinated in. I'm fascinated in other languages and how how their language tells us about their view of of the world. And for this book, what was really great is one of one of my secret questions was how many Australians sent in sent in words. And um and so I discovered that there was this group of people living in Melbourne who really took up this, this uh, cause. And not only did they collaborate together to send in words together, but they 
evangelized for the dictionary around Australia and went on tours and gave lectures. And they ended up getting 200 volunteers from around Australia to um, to also collect their local Australian words and send them in. And that's why there are so many Australian words in in, in that first edition. Yeah. It's so, you, you you obviously niche as a lexicographer, right? You Not only it's just words, it was words specifically that go in the Oxford English Dictionary that were from non-European countries starting with the letter p <laughs> <laughs> exactly yes <laughs> and actually, actually there's a there's a there's a funny little story about that so when i got to the word pig um there i noticed that the snot sense of pig wasn't wasn't there and so i went to the this is when i first started and i went to the chief editor i thought oh this is this is my sort of moment to show him that i'm a really great lex lexicographer so i said oh you know um, you are missing the the definition of pig meaning meaning snot. And he said, Oh, I've never, I've I've never heard that. I thought, oh, really? And he said, Oh, maybe it's an Australianism. So I thought, oh, maybe it is. And I thought, okay, well, great. Well, I'm gonna get this Australian sense of pig in into the dictionary. So he said, Well, if you can find plenty of instances of it in written sources, we can we can put it, put it in. So I spent the next day, two days, three days searching Australian novels and newspapers. And I couldn't find this sense of pig. And I finally rang my mum in Sydney and said, Mom, I can't find any instances of, of you know, pig meaning meaning snot. And she said, Sarah, that is our family word. You're not to use that in public and certainly not putting it in, in into the dictionary. And so I was so embarrassed because I then had to go to the chief editor and say I'm so sorry but that's just my family word for snot <laughs> oh my god okay so with there's so many words in the world there's so many variations of words in the world you could you know immerse yourself in this not only in your work life but um uh as many of the dictionary people that you write about did in their in their leisure in their in their you know fun life what do you do for fun? Like, are they all, you know, word-related things, or do you do other things? What do you do? Oh God, I don't. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I must admit, I am a bit of a nerd. Yeah, I'm always doing something, something nerdy. I'm, I'm afraid. Um, I play the odd game of tennis sometimes, but yeah, I don't really do much else. I do my, I do my work and my writing. So oh, on that writing, then, when you drew your line in the sand knew I can't really just keep going. I've got to stop researching. I've got to start writing. And you had figured out my structure is going to be A to Z and you've, you know, kind of done the thinking part of it. You've you've clumped the the zealots together. You've clumped the suffragists together and, 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 and so on. What then did that writing process look like? How long did it take? Did you aim for a particular number of words per week or something like that? And because you had to fit it in the rest of your life, did yeah. you dedicate, what time did you dedicate to it on a regular basis? Sure. I just, I had to use so many different things to try and motivate myself, but actually, and then I'd get in into the zone and, and it'd just take over. But yes, yeah, so I was working full time. So I would wake up early or I'd just spend all of my weekends on it. Um, and then once I got 
And so what I did is once I got a contract and I was then committed, I had to get that in by a certain date. That was just, oh, oh God, oh, all right, we just have to do this now. So that really helped helped me. But yes, I tried all different things. You know, I've got friends who say, oh, you know, try and write a thousand words a day. I tried that. And then I that would just sort of peter out for, for me. And then I'd get carried away and write far too much on someone. And then I'd have to cut it out. So it was a, a complete mix of different things. But I think what, what really helped me, and I, I share this in hoping that it might help someone else, is I was having lunch with a friend and he said, and I was sort of procrastinating in starting it, even though I had cracked the structure. And he said to me, just spend tomorrow, like just spend one day writing a proposal. Just give you only one day. Because I think I was probably a bit scared thinking, oh, I'll, I'll never get it right or something. So I, I did that. I just spent one day writing the book proposal. And therefore, I got an overall view then. Just writing that really helped me get an overall view of the whole book. I wrote like, I I wrote maybe one or two sentences about each of the chapters, but it just gave a really good overview. Mm. I found that a very helpful thing and it only took a day. So, But this is help. before you got the the book deal or after yeah this is before before yes yeah. yeah. so that yeah yeah that consolidated it all yeah that makes sense um it's uh <laughs> I imagine though I mean that's interesting you said that it um you know took a bit of motivation but I guess it is a very daunting thing because there because you had so much material I imagine by this point it's more an exercising exercise of curation and editing you did you end up with I imagine if I did it, I would end up end up with one billion words. You know, what did you, that raw version look like? That did you have to cut it down a lot, or did you kind of write it to the right level? Yeah, it wasn't too bad. What I ended up doing, to be honest, is putting everything aside, not looking at anything, and just seeing what people and what themes just came to the surface and spoke to me. And I thought, well, if that's catching my imagination, hopefully that will also resonate with the reader. And I just then forgot about, and actually just yesterday, because I was writing a piece for the Australian Book Review on the book. And um, so I went back and just had a look at some of the material. And to be honest, I was like, oh, I forgot to put that in. I forgot to put that in. But, you know, that's just going to be the case. So There's book number two, which is my next question, because now that this is done and it's out there and it's awesome, what's next? Well, I think that is it for me I uh, on this topic. And I really <laughs> hope that others will take it up and that it might capture them. And I will write no. on words and language, but maybe not on that topic. Yeah, I think I've done my bit there. But have you thought like what you might be interested in writing next? Yeah, so I would love to share with people a book about all the things about linguistics that I love and all the things about words that really capture me. So that's so that's my hope for the next book, yeah. <laughs> that would be great because I also want to um, emphasise to people that even though this, there's, there's a lot of research that has gone into this book, it's also Sarah's journey and Sarah's discovery of things that you experience as well you go on this journey of discovery which is just so fantastic and so special and 
there are more Australian references and you have to go read the book to discover them because they're magnificent. <laughs> um, uh, let's, let's end with, because this was so research heavy or compartmentalising heavy, you know what I mean? It was research, but it was the arrangement of that research that had to be done properly because it was so huge. If somebody's tackling something of this magnitude, what are your top three tips of, because it's daunting, you don't know where to put it all. What are your top three tips on what kind of thing that they need to put in place to ensure that they are organising their information in a way that's going to actually be useful, not just interesting? Hmm. I think it all comes down to telling a story, really. So I um, there were lots of ways that I could have written this book. In the end, I wanted to sit down with the reader and tell them a story. And so, uh, and that was a challenge because I, I wanted to, there's an overarching narrative to the book, which I hope comes comes through with a couple of sort of um, you know, common themes like my my own story and then James Murray's story. And then we meet the characters along the way. And so yeah, I think basically it just came down to telling a story um, and, and making it as intimate and personal as I could. I love that because I think that that, that is so true because it's even though these are about people in the, you know, um, 1800s, it, these are stories you're going to tell your friends at the pub, aren't they? They're they're just they're just so interesting that you absolutely would do that. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. Thank you, Valerie. Yeah, I love I love that, and I hope that that's that that is the case because basically that's why I wrote it. I want to give these people credit. I want their names to be known and their lives to be appreciated and all the tasks that they did to recording our language for us and for future generations because the the dictionary would not exist without them. Yeah, I certainly did not expect to get emotional <laughs> reading. Well, but when, when you read the title of this book, you kind of go, you know, I'm going to be reading about people who help write a dictionary. <laughs> You certainly don't expect to get emotional by the end of it, but 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 I certainly did. Anyway, congratulations on the dictionary people. It's absolutely brilliant. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Valerie. It's been such a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Sarah Ogilvie as much as I did. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me this week. I've really enjoyed it and I hope you found something inspirational or informative or at least entertaining from this week's episode. Please do connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram, but more importantly, connect on the Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community and request to join. I love the conversations that are going on in there and it's a great place for you to ask questions and hear from other people, other like-minded people who are in the same boat as you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter 
at writercentre.com.au slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.